Welcome to the Multifamily Mavericks Podcast, hosted by Josiah Smelser and Megan Greathouse. This is your one-stop shop for building and growing your multifamily business. Join us on a weekly basis as we crack the code to multifamily investing and scale up to financial freedom. And now your hosts, Josiah and Megan. What's up, guys? I'm excited to be back for another episode of the Multifamily Mavericks with guest David Perret and my real estate assassin ninja co-host, <laughs> Megan Greathouse. What's up, Megan? I'm going to have to up my game on the <laughs> random, exciting like nicknames and intros for you. I feel like I'm lacking here. So I'll randomness. work on that. <laughs> I do love randomness. It's part of my sense of humor. So, uh, yeah, love I always it. love on bigger pockets where David makes up stuff for Brandon. So I might have to steal yes. that and borrow it. There you go. Um, Maybe I'll just yeah. let it be your thing. <laughs> You're really good at it. <laughs> you can uh, do whatever, whatever suits you best. Um, yeah. So this episode, I thought this episode was really great. Um, David, David's a practitioner. He's, he's out there doing deals. He's making things happen. And um, he's experiencing adversity, which we talk about. And uh, I just thought this was was a really cool episode to learn. We're going to talk about things like rubs and how you can um, approach rubs on a deal you've purchased to create value and bump that NOI up. And um, yeah, Megan, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I think David is in a great spot um, for all of us to learn from because he's doing some big things, but he hasn't been doing only big things for five or 10 or 20 years. He is in a place that's still pretty close to where a lot of us are. He's been doing real estate for years. He's got a lot of experience across many different um, facets of real estate investing, including Airbnb. Uh, But what we really focus on here is some of the larger deals that he's kind of jumped into in the past few years. So a 10 unit that was just on his own. Um, It was in an area of Missouri where prices were, were cheap enough that he was able to do that on his own a 40 unit that, you know, got a little crazy. And we can hear about some of the, um, the pitfalls that he experienced and how he's coming out of that. And then he was brought in as a GP within a team of GPs on 146 unit, which is really great because he went from, you know, a 10 and a 40 to 146 unit by teaming up with some other guys who are already working on this. Um, So I think there's a lot of great stuff here and a lot of ways into multifamily that David has shown and used in the past few years. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so what's going on real quick? What's going on this week with your business? Yeah, so I actually just got, uh, before we recorded the podcast, got a call from a guy with a 16 unit in like a great area in South City. So I'm excited to chat with him further tomorrow. I got a little bit of basic information and I'll do my homework tonight and call him again tomorrow. Um, I did go look at a 24 unit nearby. I, I don't know if the the numbers are quite right and the, the seller is is set on his number. So we'll see. I'm just, I'm, yeah, yeah. You know how it goes. So I'm just trying to, to, yeah, really, um, chase down all the leads and spend my time and run my numbers. And if nothing else is great practice and, uh, eventually, eventually one of these will work out well. And along the way, I'm making some good connections. I mean, the guy I talked with today, he's got 66 units throughout St. Louis that he self-manages 
while still working his full-time job and he's got a family and he's like, yeah, it's no big deal. I have a ton of fun with it. I mean, he's, he's the kind of guy I would want to get to know and mm. spend time with regard whether I can buy this building from him. So that's yeah. kind of cool. How that's about you? What's going on with you? <clears throat> yeah. It's, um, just continuing to hack away. Um, got a 60 unit deal. Um, a lead on that nice. today. It sounds promising. Could be with, um, a potential partner that's out of state. Um, he found the deal. We're talking about teaming up on it. So I'm realizing more and more, and I already knew this just from my experience building my portfolio to date, but networking is the key with this stuff because these multifamily deals are larger deals and it takes, it takes a village to raise, raise a child. It takes a team to take down a multifamily. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, and David talks about that in this episode. It wasn't, he didn't take down this over 100 unit deal by himself. He teamed up with a lot of people that had complementary skill sets to him. And so I'm realizing you don't, you know, it, it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to have only one partner and you only do deals together. I can do a deal with Megan. I could do a deal with David. I could do a deal with someone else. And we can all, it's a win win, right? It's not a zero sum game. Everyone can win at this and there's deals to go around. So, you know, I was impressed with with David's ability to to figure out how to make the deals work and get those things done. And I know that applies to what we're both working on as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, to, to the listeners, network, 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 meet people, expand your network, figure out a way to expand your reach because it'll benefit you big time as you build your portfolio. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. And I think David makes an excellent point today in the depth of your networking or the depth of your relationship building too. So we talk a little bit at one point in the podcast about the fact that he has a big network. He's got a podcast and a website of his own and he puts a lot of effort into creating great content. So he's got a mailing list. He's got a network, but you need to take it beyond just, okay, I have your email Um, and we've talked once, you know, you've got to make sure you're building some deeper connections if you want to be finding partners or finding people who will bring money into your deals. Because, you know, one email to them every once in a while probably isn't going to do it. Um, So I think that's a great discussion too. Uh, Networking is definitely a great theme in this podcast. And I mean, we can, if you're ready, Josiah, head into the podcast and hear it straight from David. Let's let's dive into this one and uh, take some notes. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Multifamily Mavericks. Josiah and I are happy to have you back, and we are excited to welcome today David Perret. He is a fellow investor. He's done smaller stuff. He's done some bigger stuff. He is also the host of the From Military to Millionaire podcast. They also have YouTube and blog and, I mean, all sorts of great content that he's putting out for fellow veterans who are investing in different ways. Um, and he's just really active in this space. So David, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. Thank you very much for having me. This is going to be fun. Yeah, for sure. So before we get started, you know, I I shared just a little bit, but, um, why don't you go ahead and take a couple minutes to just introduce yourself to our, um, listeners and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you've done in real estate. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I am an active duty Marine still for about another year. I plan on going to reserves here next year. And I've been in for, uh, well, six days from now will be 12 years. And then uh, I joined a logistics guy, kind of travel the world, do all that fun stuff. I drive trucks and, you know, it doesn't sound super glamorous, but it's been fun at times. And in 2015, someone handed me Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And the story is kind of similar to a lot of people from there. I read the book and then I read another book and then I read another book. And then uh, three months later, I bought a duplex. 
I moved into one side, I rented the other side, and it just kind of went from there. We have uh, we slowly, uh, personally, we own 15 doors in Missouri right now. So two duplexes, a single family, and a 10 unit, as well as some farmland with cattle on it. Not anything crazy. It was more that I just wanted the land and cattle was the way that I could justify paying for it. And then... <laughs> Uh, we've partnered on a few others. So I've done a, I did a partnership on a 40 unit, which I'm sure we'll dig into, but it didn't really work out so well. It was a lease option. I did, I terminated the contract and we're currently still in a battle to get our money back out of it. And I have been, uh, I've done a few flips, done a, a little bit of other smaller stuff here and there with, uh, other investors, done a little Airbnb where like right now, like I'm renting a house and Airbnb bedrooms, um, and then I most recently, well, actually not most recently, but fairly recently, uh, general partner on a 146-unit apartment syndication in South Carolina. So that's kind of the the gist. I've been trying to balance like Marine Corps life with like building a online presence and still buying real estate. And I just don't sleep. <laughs> I am with you there. I've got the the real estate and the kids and everything going on. And yeah, I, I think sleep is the thing that um, goes first. <laughs> I'd yeah. rather spend the time with the kids and get the work done. So I feel you there, but hopefully we've all got our coffee ready for us as we go yes, through this yes. podcast today. Um, and let's dig in a little bit. So it sounds like you've done a lot across a, a bunch of different facets of real estate, um, but that 10 unit was kind of your first bigger multifamily. Is that right? What year yeah. did you buy that? And can you tell us a little bit about that deal? That would have been, I think we closed like February 28th of uh, 2018. And I, ironically enough, I wasn't looking for bigger deals. I was mailing people for duplexes and this guy was just like, oh yeah, well, I have a duplex, but I don't want to sell it to you. But I have a 10 unit. And you're interested in looking at that? And it happened to be like, man, I, I, it was like right after Christmas, like the 26th or 27th of December probably. And I was in town. I was leaving like the next day. So I was like, man, I'm interested, but I know I'm not going to get a chance to look at this because I, I was stationed in Hawaii at the time and this was in Missouri. And so I, I drove to the property and I basically just knocked on all the tenants' doors until I could convince someone to let me look inside one of their units, which <laughs> honestly probably wasn't... Uh, it might have been a good or a bad because it was a pretty ugly looking... Not a hoarder, but I mean, a, you know, an inside smoker and a, not a pretty unit, right? It wasn't the unit the guy would have showed me. So I guess it was good that I got to see that, but I didn't get to see any of the other units. So my only impression was that might've made me negotiate a little harder, but the guy was asking for, now these are Missouri prices, but he was asking for 245, I think. And we got him down to 225 for the 10 units. And then after the inspections came back, we renegotiated some stuff from, we were going to just take a, a, a concession or whatever, but instead we just dropped the price to 212 and a half, which was actually not the way I would have preferred to do that. I would have preferred to just have the seller pay everything and, and be done with it. But it worked out in my favor because the cool thing was the local bank, they kind of messed up. So they were going to bring 80% and I was going to bring 10% and the seller was going to bring 10%. And they were going to uh, finance at 4% interest for five years and just an easy easy process. And somehow, some way, the bank kind of messed up on paperwork or something happened. And I got a call on uh, closing day saying, hey, we brought too much. We didn't realize you dropped the price. So do you want to close in another day or two and send another check? Or do you want us to just pay and you can just, we'll reimburse you. You get, you put less down. Oh, I'll do that. So I got into the property for, uh, it's like 10,900 down. I think it was less than 5% or right around 5%. And 
was a decent deal. I mean, it needed work. We had to, it still needs work. It's not like the prettiest how you know, property on the street, but it, it works, it's functional. And it, yeah, 18 months after we bought it, I was able to refinance, pull all my cash out, pull, uh, pay off the seller financing. And then I really didn't pull any more cash out. I had a lot more equity, but I, I just pulled enough to pay myself and my seller financing off so that I have no money in the deal. I dropped the mortgage 200 bucks a month and I am cash flowing 12 to $1,500 a month on a property that I own you know, with a pretty decent loan to value. I think I'm at like 65% loan to value right now and no money in it. So I can't really complain. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about what happened between that purchase and the refinance. Was there a lot of work that went into repositioning this and increasing? Did you raise rents? Did you improve the building? Um, or did you just get a really good deal on that initial purchase? All of the above, I think. So I got a good deal. Rents haven't gone up too much, maybe 25, 50 a door. Um, so, I mean, they're not excessive. They're still low. I, but uh, he wasn't doing any rubs. So that was another thing. I, I got all the tenants slowly, in, incrementally increasing. Right now, they all pay 25 bucks towards utilities, which is nothing. But it's it's an extra 250 a month that wasn't coming in. So I pay about 1000 to 1200 a month for the utilities on that building. And it's just old and single metered. And I... Uh, you know, there wasn't anything coming in from the utility. So now it's 250 and eventually it'll get up to 500 and hopefully eventually I'll get it completely replaced. But we've kind of done a little bit of that. And then just some other basic stuff. We, uh, we put low flow valves, um, uh, not valves, filters, whatever in the, um, so we put, I'm going to mess up if I try to talk about gallons per minute or whatever, uh, <laughs> or however they, Whatever it's on Amazon because I I went in there and was like here I actually ironically I uh, if you have a website and you can do Amazon affiliates cool hack you can send your property manager exactly what you want them to buy for a property and then you get a kickback from Amazon for them buying through your code so I <laughs> thought that was funny but uh, we we did low gallons per minute uh, in the sinks and in the bathroom and in the kitchen and then we did uh, I put. LED, like the the timer lights in bathrooms, because I realized that tenants just leave bathroom lights on all day long. So I want them to just automatically shut off. And we just did some LED lighting outside. So we cut the, cut the utilities probably by about 150, 200 bucks a month. And then we, you know, charge a little bit extra. That's probably the biggest difference in how we're managing. I'm locked into a stupid contract with the laundry company, which is, it's pretty funny that I have this crappy coin laundry lease thing that I can't get out of yet. <laughs> and I own a top bottom commercial dryer washer that is literally sitting in a barn. So I'm like, I own a brand new unit sitting in a barn and then I have them taking 50% of the income with their crappy unit and I can't break the lease yet. But um, how long is that lease? I think I got like another year and a half. It was like a four year lease or five year lease. And I bought it like halfway through and they're just kind of jerks about anything that I ever ask them about. Like they just have not been polite to work with. So I don't know. I, I have a sneaking suspicion that the lease is going to like come up towards the end and they're going to be like, oh, look, hey, a, a totally allowable on us to decide renewal that yeah. we forgot to tell you about. So yeah, they seem slimy. So let, you, you hit on something that I think is a great way to add value when you buy an existing property and that's rubs. So talk through, let's play like somebody's listening to this that wants to get into investing in multifamily and is not familiar with what rubs is or means. Walk us through that real quick. 
Yeah, Rubs is ratio utility billing services. And there's a lot of ways you can do it. There's actually like a, some cool, more high-tech ways where you can like plug into the actual unit and Wi-Fi can calculate. But there's several ways you can do it. So what it is, is essentially billing back utilities to residents. There's a couple of benefits to it. One, uh, if you are paying the utilities on a building, tenants don't give a crap about how much electricity they use. I mean, everyone's heard the horror story of the guy who's like sitting in the sitting in their apartment in December, and they've got the heat on full blast, and the windows cracked open, yeah. and they're just like sitting by the window, like oh, fresh air, but also it's cold, so let me turn the heat on or whatever. Um, I think the the bigger reality is just that they'll leave every light on in the in the inside and run every power switch and just drain your electricity. Which especially during the summer when you have HVAC going in a in a hot climate, that's terrible already. And especially because you know the the dollar like the cost in Missouri for solar doesn't just necessarily justify the reward because electricity is cheap. So it's like, eh, it's not even really worth putting solar on this building yet. So I might as well just eat it. So what rubs is, is it allows you to bill back and say, Hey, you know, I'm going to charge you all $25 on top of your lease towards uh, utilities. And then I'm going to move it to 50. And then in a perfect world, there's a couple of ways you can do it. If they're all one bed, one bath units, then you can say, Hey, the utilities was 1200 divide that by 10 tenants that's your piece 120 bucks this month or you can do uh you can split it up by like you can you can vary it to where it's like okay three people like you could do it per person in the building so if there's 25 tenants you divide it by that and then give it per there's a couple of different ways you can try to portion it out to make it fair but since it was in none of their leases and I wasn't going to be able to roll it into everybody's lease at one time what I did was I just did a flat 25 and then next year I'll just do a flat 50 and that's not even coming close, but hopefully it'll still help with, if nothing else, it's a consistent income that you can show when you value the building, which Absolutely. is useful. Yeah. So, so, so you said it wasn't in their leases. Um, how did you inform the tenants upon buying this? You just send them a letter stating we're about to start doing rubs. This is how much it's going to be. Did you have any blowback on that or how, how did you handle that aspect? Well, what we did was a lot of the tenants were month to month when we moved in. And so we just basically not forced, but, you know, strong armed. That sounds like such a jerk way to say it. We <laughs> kindly informed them that if they would like to stay in the property. They're going to be transferred onto our lease. And with that came the additional, uh, we increased rents a little bit. And we, because we had some people in there when I first took over that I didn't want in the building anyway. And there were, there were two, the guy did some really wonderful screening. He had two sex offenders, not even just one in the building. Um, <laughs> wow. So, so we were very quick to, terrible. Yeah, we, we were pretty quick to, and one of them hadn't even been paying rent um, and was like letting vagabonds live in the laundry room. So mm. we were, we we're pretty quick to, uh, do some turnover and get rid of some people and, and just turn everyone over to our lease uh, or my property manager's lease as quickly as possible. Um, and in that, we included the the rubs. So I'm guessing if you've got an existing lease, a tenant's just signed a new 12-month lease, you buy the property, you're not going to be able to, to move that tenant on to rubs until after their lease is up. Is that correct? Yeah. If you take over, uh, you just got to deal with whatever lease they're on until it comes time to renew. And then at renewal, you can move them into whatever. So we tried to push everybody into a full year um, or, or, you know, so they, so they were in 
fairly below market, not not super below market, but fairly below market monthly leases. And and anyone who invests in real estate understands like a monthly lease is a higher paying, higher paid lease than a annual. Usually the incentive is like, hey, if you put a 12 month lease on this bad boy, you get 50 bucks off a month or whatever. Um, and so these were all low enough that it was very easy to say, hey, we'll keep you at the exact same rate for a full year lease plus this 25 for rubs, or you can pay an extra 75 a month and stay month to month. And ultimately that would have been more money for me anyway, but we still would have included rubs. So I love um, it. I love it. Well, let's let's talk about um, you mentioned a, a pretty large deal that you were a part of recently. Can you can you share how that deal came about? I believe you're on the GP side of that the strategy on that deal and give us some, some detail on that. Yeah. So this is a, a totally new world for me. Um, it, it's a team that I'm familiar with who I knew two, two of the guys who are in the syndication team had been on my podcast. And so they'd been mentioning doing a deal and uh, they brought one up and I said, I wasn't ready. And then they brought another one up and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm not really sure. And then they brought this one up and I was like, you know, it's a good looking deal. And if I don't do this, like, and, you know, I, eventually I wanted to get into larger stuff anyway. I mean, I've already done uh, a few somewhat larger things on my own. So I kind of wanted to see the back end on syndication side. What better way to do that than getting involved? And so when they asked me if I wanted to be, you know, kind of a, a co-sponsor on the deal, I was like, okay, yeah, let's take a look. And the numbers seemed to work out. So I got to play a role in uh, underwriting, do some, some of the due diligence walkthrough with them. And then I did a lot of investor relations stuff to help out with the deal. And I just kind of sat back and learned the process. Um, I think it, in all, you know, in all honesty, I think I was invited in just because I have a network. And I think there was a piece there that was like, hey, if we can get David to do some deals with us, like, yeah, as a network, this could, you know, which is is mutually beneficial, but I got to learn a ton. In fact, I probably learned enough to know that I don't really know if I ever want to be the full face of a syndication. It's, uh, <laughs> I talk about like the energy to income ratio. And I'm like, if I can be a member of a GP and not have to be the person dealing with SEC attorneys and all the paperwork, <laughs> like I'm okay with that, that part of it. Um, but yeah, so the deal's uh, 146 units we closed in South Carolina. It was a 9.1 million purchase and uh, projected, you know, it's all projections, but uh, like a seven pref and uh, I think it's like an 18 and a quarter projected IRR. That's with a, It's a seven-year hold and um, uh, refinance right around, well, it was right around year two and a half or three. We'll, we'll see because we've kind of delayed some of the renovation stuff, but um, yeah. Uh, that's the, I mean, that's the basics of it. Yeah. The, the plan is to, well, it's kind of interesting. So the plan was originally we had like 40% of the units were section eight. So the plan was to just rotate, like roll through the first year and just do like exterior stuff and renovate uh, or turn over the tenant body and increase rents to market because they weren't at market value yet. So the plan was to just kind of push this section eight out up the rents on, on newer, higher quality people with exterior renovations, refinance, and then use that money to do the full interior renovations and, and bump it up again as we moved it, repositioned it. Um, interestingly enough, we closed in March and so Section 8 tenants became exceptionally valuable for a little while because they are guaranteed, well, basically guaranteed to pay and everybody was losing their mind with uh, what the future of the world looked like. So we kind of delayed some of that. We, we've been doing basic exterior stuff, but we haven't been doing the, the turnover so much uh, yet just because it, they, it makes sense to have them. So we've had 
a little bit of a vacancy hit, not much, but because we've been, we haven't been running like community centers and, and uh, a lot of the exterior uh, amenities and some of the other stuff that we haven't been able to use. Uh, between that and not doing some of the initial external renovations, we've actually been running a, a higher net income than we thought we would be running the first few months. So it's been good. Uh, we're just, I guess we've gotten some discounts on some of the things that we we thought we were going to be, you know, people are willing to work a little bit more affordably than originally uh, quoted because they can't get work anywhere else. So we've gotten a few discounts out of it. So in, interestingly enough, as much as the vacancy's gone up a little bit, we've actually been running leaner with everything COVID related. So, wow, that's oh. that's nice to hear. I think a lot of folks feel in times like these, like you know, the sky is falling and and nothing's going to go as well, and you should just sit on the sidelines. But there there can be these silver linings and these things that actually pan out or work even better than you expected. Um, you've just got to be flexible and look for where those opportunities are when things aren't going as originally planned. So I want to just go through the, the setup or the, um, the partnership on this, the, I guess, syndication on this. So you said 7% prep. So you, that means a 7% preferred return for all of those who invested money in this deal. And then is there a split between GPs and LPs after that 7% prep? And what is that? 70-30. Okay, 72 the GPs? Se- se- 70 LP, 30 GP. Got it. Okay. Um, and then how many are there on this team? How many GPs? Ooh, that's a good question. So the, uh, the actual like managing members is a smaller team. So it's like four. And then there's, uh, I think there's five of us that are kind of co-sponsors that are uh, helping with pieces. So it's, and I'm gonna, yeah. I feel like I'm forgetting someone in my head, but I think sure. it's nine of us. Gotcha. And this is interesting to hear just because I think there are, I mean, the sky's the limit in terms of how many ways you can put these things together, how many people you can bring in and the structure. So it's always interesting to go through the details on that. Um, And, you know, it's interesting to hear from your perspective too. You're interested at some point in, in doing some syndications, but this has also opened your eyes to maybe which parts of it you like and which parts of it you don't like. And it's always nice to know there are people to partner with, so you don't have to do those parts you don't like. So, so what were the parts you've enjoyed and what parts would you prefer to stay away from and why? Good question. I, I prefer to stay away from the... So I'm a, I'm a... If you're familiar with the disc profile, I'm a D and an I or a high I, a high D, um, meaning that I am a people person and a vision type guy. And I am not... A, like I'm the guy who, if you were to try to sell me on investing in a property, your PowerPoint should be three slides and say, here's a picture of the property here's how much money you'll make questions. And then like, <laughs> like awesome. Um, you know, obviously I would look at spreadsheets and stuff, but if you send me like a 25 page PowerPoint, that's just an Excel like mess of like every analytic I could ever want. It's like, just tell me what I just, just give me the bottom line. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm that personality. And so the like SEC regulation forms and the, the like, having to follow really strict timelines for due, for due diligence and financing and funding and raising and and all of that kind of documentation tep, step toe, tiptoeing stuff is not my not what I would want to be doing with my time. I would much prefer to be um, 
like a face for helping to raise capital, doing the webinar, networking, uh, showcasing content and what what's going on with the deal and talking about that stuff. I would also much prefer to do uh, like investor relations, Q&A, and also uh, like the due diligence piece. Like I physically enjoy walking properties and picking out things that need to be done and planning out like the strategic plan for repositioning and everything. I don't physically enjoy like managing the contractors. So... Yes, that's kind that of makes the, sense. Yeah. And that's the power of having a bunch of people on the team because you can do the parts that you're good at and let other people focus on the other things. That's awesome. So this 146 unit, I'm sorry, can you tell us again, where, where are you in the process now? It, it kind of slowed down or changed, I guess, due to COVID. So where are you now and where do you see this project going between now and the end of the year? Um, you said a seven-year hold. So so what happens in the near future? Yeah, I think we're we're opening back up. We've done a few of the external renovations, but there's things that have been on hold that uh, like we're just waiting on the go ahead to where we can replace windows like we were planning on doing because we don't really want to have people in uh, tenant spaces right now and uh, some of that stuff. So the goal for this first first little bit is to uh, get a pool in, get uh, exterior renovations like the the painting and stuff is, is getting done, but uh, waiting on windows, waiting on uh, some of the stuff that we just can't really like yeah, everyone's super touchy about getting in tenant spaces right now or, or anything um, regarding that. Uh, so we, we implemented, um, we paid for some security on the premises to kind of help clean up some of the area. It was, it's not a bad area, but help clean up some, you know, a show that we're there to make a difference. Uh, we're getting rid of, there's this old basketball court thing that was in terrible shape. So we're going to be putting in a, a pool complex there. Um, and then just more or less like upkeep as far as like retarring part of the parking lot, painting. That's really what we're doing right now is just making the outside look pretty. And then just probably here in the end of this year, maybe beginning of next year, whenever whenever you can replace people without having to worry about being called a terrorist, uh, we're going to start slowly, <laughs> slowly turning over the tenant base to just get that solid, solid base. So I don't want to, off the top of my head, quote exactly what the average price for all units was, but I think it was in the 650 range. And then market is 750. So we're going to bump everything up to like 750, 775. And then once we renovate, we can bump it up closer to 950, 1000. And that's once we do internal renovation. So the plan is once we get it up and we refinance it, then as we turn over units, we'll, we'll do full interior updates and renovations and then we'll turn it over a second time. And then at the seven-year mark, we, we exit, in theory, with a whole lot of money in our pockets. Very nice. <laughs> um, you mentioned this on, I believe, your first deal. Is The tenant base on this current deal we're talking about is a good portion of, of those, or a good portion of those Section 8? Yeah, so this okay. one is uh, about 40% Section okay. 8 when we bought it. Okay, so we're in the middle of this COVID mess, right? And there's eviction moratoriums and all kinds of stuff we're dealing with, uh, property owners are dealing with. Um, how has that affected you guys? We basically just left left it as is. I mean, we've, we've been filling vacancies that arise, but we haven't been uh, turning people over per se. We've been just taking renewals whenever they come. Sure. Um, Especially because Section Eight is a great tenant base to have right now, because sure. you know that the, the city is paying a pretty solid chunk of their what is it seventy percent or yeah. whatever of their income, so or of their rent. So, yeah, Section you know, Eight's really de-risking your project right now. 
Yeah. Um, so strategically, how is your group? Because I mean, this, new news is coming out on this stuff all the time. They just extended this eviction moratorium. And I've been talking to a lot of owners that were looking forward to the last one ending so they could handle some of the people that aren't paying because, you know, there's this conundrum, right? You don't really want to boot people out during COVID that have lost their job, but you also have to be able to service your mortgage, provide the return to your investors that you were, you know, calculating that kind of thing. So how has your group strategic, strategically planned to, to handle this uncertainty going forward? Um, in light of kind of the the where we are in the world with all this, man, uh, <laughs> it's an interesting question because it's such a adaptive um, process at this sure. point. So, I mean, basically, what we've been doing is just uh, the first thing we did was help everybody understand how to apply for unemployment and the the FPUC or whatever the federal unemployment additional check was to help mitigate the need for any kind of these issues. And then we've really just been proactive about talking to tenants and tenant base and saying like, hey, if you got problems, let us know. Like, we're here to work with you. Um, we luckily, we haven't had a ton of issues. I mean, That's for good. 146, it's been, you know, onesies and twosies, but very minimal drop in vacancy or issues. Um, and I think part of that's just because of the communication and the fact that, it, you know, between the unemployment checks and being Section 8, you know, the the mix of tenants, we've been all right. The biggest thing we're doing is just figuring out like, like you said, it's a, it's a fine line. Nobody wants to be the apartment complex who kicked 40 people out the moment the restriction lifted. Although right. we don't have very many non-paying. So as of right now, we wouldn't have to do that anyway. That's good. Uh, but at the same time, there's investor money, there's future income, there's all kinds of other considerations. So you still have to run it like a business. So it's, it's kind of more of the like, hey, we're giving you a chance to to catch up. We're going to give you a chance. All right. Your chance is going to end here. Um, sorry. Um, yeah. But we haven't really had to come across that bridge yet. And the hope is that people will continue to be decent and we won't have to evict very many. Um, so far, it has been much better than... I mean, I've heard of people having some really bad luck right now with just, uh, just a rough time. Uh, we've been all right. So hopefully it continues to be that way. What class would you say this property is? Is this a C class property? B? It's like a upper C, okay. lower B, and it's we're going to transition it more into upper B as we move on. Good deal. Uh, you mentioned how many people you had involved in the GP on this. Um, just ballpark. How many investors did you bring in on the LP side and how difficult was that for this raise? Yeah, so we raised, uh, I think it ended up being 3.65. and the minimum was 50. We didn't have as many large investors. So trying to do math in public, it was probably <laughs> 45 or 50 uh, LPs that are in the deal. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Good deal. Was that, was that raise difficult? Was it fairly easy oh, with your yeah, network? I forgot, or? forgot that part of the question. It was totally difficult for me. So uh, this is actually something I can definitely help somebody under understand something new. So if you are thinking about getting into syndications, no matter how big your network is, if you haven't got a personal relationship with them, you can't show them the deal. Like depending on what kind of deal it is, right? Like if it's a 506B and it's only accredited, accredited investors, you can market and nobody cares. But if it's 506C and you can do sophisticated investors, then 
I, I better not be making that backwards. If I'm making that backwards, I'm sorry. Uh, but <laughs> I think B, um, I think B is the one with existing relationships, and C is the accredited. I believe. Yeah, I, I always get it backwards. I, I anyway, think. so one of the two <laughs> you can do accredited and sophisticated. The other one you can only do accredited, and the only accredited one you can market everywhere. Yeah. The accredited and sophisticated you have to have an existing relationship. And it can't be like in my case where it's like, yeah, we're Facebook friends. They follow me on Instagram and I have, you know, a thousand people in my email list. It's like, no, you have to have been able to show like you've had phone conversations with these people. You Maybe you've met them in person. Maybe you've done whatever. And so for me, that was just crushing in a lot of ways because I had a fairly large network that I had not warmed up at all or networked with or I didn't have a separate list. So basically what I did was I took every podcast. In fact, Megan probably got this email. Hmm. took every podcast guest I'd ever had and said, nobody can tell me I don't have a relationship with these people. They talked to me for 45 minutes on my podcast and I emailed them. And then I just talked to people who were like personal friends and I was kind of in a hole. So I'm much better prepared now because once once the deal's under contract, right? You can't, it has to be someone you had an existing relationship with before. You can't go and make that relationship then. And so, yeah, I was I was stuck. So personally, I only brought in uh, two investors. I mean, it was a decent amount of money, but I did not really participate nearly as much as I was anticipating that I would. However, since then, having been able to, once that deal closed, market to my my mailing list and my group and everything else. I've got a email list with like 150 people right now, not including the original podcasters who, you know, I've got relationships with, I've got documentation, I know who's accredited, I know how much money sophisticated have, and I've got people that are willing to invest. So the next one will be much, much, much better. But it, I mean, it's a good thing I jumped in as, on something like this as a learning experience instead of doing my first syndication because I might have very well learned the hard way that I can't really raise money for my own deal. Um, so yeah, <laughs> SEC guidelines are kind of a pain if you don't know what you're doing. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and I just double checked, jumped on. It's I, I find it very easy to confuse 506B and 506C. 506B is the regulation that, or the the syndication that allows you to use pre-existing relationships, but you can't publicly advertise. And then 506C, you can, but you have to, you know, you're going with accredited investors. You got to dance around those requirements and stuff. I've not been through either one yet. So you're ahead of me on your experience with this. <laughs> but I, uh, I flip-flopped them. <laughs> yeah, well, but you also had somebody on your team handling that. You, are, you already mentioned that you, you don't like that part of it. So I think- yeah. The lesson, I, I think the I think the takeaway there is something that you can apply to to investing no matter where you are, whether you're doing multifamily or single family. And that is if there's a piece of what you're doing that you don't enjoy and don't like, you can find someone that does enjoy that, that's really good at that, and you can have them on your team. And um, and that's what helped me with with my current portfolio. My business partner was really good at, you know, some of the things that I hated doing and I was good at some of the things he hated doing. We made a great team and the the sum was greater than the parts there. So, um, yeah. so yeah, it's, it's good to hear that someone that's well-connected had difficulty raising money because I've heard that a number of times. I think that's a good thing for people to understand is you may think it's easy to raise the money, but it's likely going to be more challenging than you think to get the money once you have the deal. We're also in, in a time of uncertainty, I would say, with this COVID stuff. Yeah. So I guess one school of thought is, people are more willing to write a check because they're worried about the stock market. 
Another school of thought is people don't want to write a check because they're worried in general about their financial well-being. So what were some things you heard from some investors when you guys went out and tried to raise? Yeah, I definitely had two or three people who were very seriously considering investing and then decided not to closer to this. One one of which is a, a, a pretty knowledgeable real estate investor who was just looking to stash some cash as an LP. And his ultimate reasoning wasn't anything about the market being bad. It was just, I want to hold this cash in case it does go down. And then I have, you know, I have the opportunity to invest myself because it was just extra cash. He was planning on sticking in an LP and, and letting it ride. And he just decided, you know what, I'd rather hold on to it. And then if things go south, then I have an extra 50 to buy another flip or two or whatever. Um, there was definitely one who was just super nervous about the future and didn't really feel like investing, which is unfortunate on a lot of a, a lot of different cases because yeah, you can't predict the market, but I mean, ultimately, like the alternative that this person's doing is putting it in a savings account. Okay, well, <laughs> oh, yeah, man. you're right. It's it's quote unquote safe unless we do have a lot of inflation, in which case your money's losing value and the apartment's not. So yeah. It's, uh, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen. Uh, fears are definitely there. Nerves are there. The, the other guy, I don't, he was pretty serious, but, oh, no, I remember what happened. We, we finished the raise before he made up his mind. So um, <laughs> I was like, hey, sorry. I know you were thinking about this. Uh, better luck next time. That, um, that guy, call, <laughs> call that guy on the next one because he'll be the first one to put a check in. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Like you had six months or three months or whatever. Um so, I mean, we we definitely handled had, had some of those objections. The cool thing with everything that was going on, I know two or three syndicators who lost deals in March or April because of funding, because bank funding was just so scattered that mm. whether the bank pulled out on them or or whatever, they they just could not make the deal work anymore. I don't remember for one of them, I think he had to pay was going to have to pay a much higher rate than he thought. Uh, the other one just couldn't qualify for whatever because banks were overlaying all kinds of craziness in those few months. Um, we actually were able to close fine. We The only thing that really changed for us as far as funding went is that we had to hold an additional reserve. It was like an extra 150,000 reserve. And it was, I'm trying to remember, I think it was, I think it was an, in addition to like for principal for just the debt. Uh, reserve. It was like an extra $150,000 that we ended up raising to add, the, add that reserve in because it was originally just going to be a three and a half raise. And uh, other than that, I think I think we actually went down like a, a tenth of a point on the interest rate we we're going to get. So it was kind of interesting because we got fairly decent terms. And I, I think it's just pre-existing. You know, they'd already done two or three deals with this bank or this lender and... Um, Everything seemed to line up, but yeah, we did have to bring some extra reserves in. I think, I think that we only have to hold them for a year, and then we can either redistribute them or use them for renovations. But uh, uh, there were definitely some some changes with all of that during that time. But it wasn't anything super crazy for us, which is nice. That's awesome. It's been it's definitely been a crazy time, and it's nice to hear that you guys were able to na navigate that fairly unscathed. Um, I want to go back to something so you were saying. <laughs> So Knock far, on wood. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just want to go back for a second to, to the whole the networking and how to prepare, I guess, your network for some of these things. It's um, it's interesting because I think a lot of times people think, well, I don't want to go out and talk to people until I've got this deal ready. 
But then if that's what you do, then you run the risk of it's too late to actually get them really on board and get enough of that back and forth and relationship built. And it's something that I've seen, you know, I I started connecting with some folks several months ago and I was in my head wondering like, why, why am I talking to all these folks? Am I just wasting their time? I don't actually have the property yet. Does this make sense? And as I've been talking with more folks through this podcast that we're working on, uh, I've heard this over and over again, that you need to be talking to people early and often. So, I mean, in the Marine Corps, I remember everyone always talking about hydration is constant. Sounds like networking and relationship building is constant (laughs) when you are wanting to partner or syndicate or JV on larger deals. So that's a great thing for everyone to keep in mind and take away from this. I also want to go back real quick to what you were talking about with how you guys managed Um, making sure that you didn't end up with a bunch of people just not paying rent on this 146 unit building. Do you guys have property management in place and you were managing those property managers and how they did this or some portion of your GP group managing it? Yeah, we use a third party. This is actually the, uh, I can't remember if it's the second or the third deal they've used the same property manager on in the the general area. Uh, But yeah, we use them and we were just kind of saying, hey, you know, we want to make sure that you get this information out to um, the tenants. And then I, I did the same thing on my smaller stuff too. I just called my property manager and was like, hey, send them this on unemployment, send them this on FBUC, tell them we'll work with them, but they got to be upfront and tell us what's going on. Um, you know, and just kind of reassuring, like, you know, if you start hearing about how mean tenants are or landlords are, like, that's not us. We're here yeah. to help, but you got to work with us too. Yeah, that's great. And it's great that you have property management, both for your own and for this larger building that is responsive enough and will work with you on some of those things. I think uh, something that I've struggled with in the past is property management that's willing to kind of do things the way I'd like to see them done. And I think some of that comes from size, right? I mean, if I have, you know, 10 units and they're managing two or three or 400, then okay, Megan, go away. Stop, stop asking <laughs> us for these special things. Uh, but if you've got a bunch of, of buildings with a single property manager or a really large building with them, I think there's a lot more wiggle room to manage that manager and have them make sure that they're doing some of these things your way so that you're staying proactive and on top of some of the issues that can come up. Has there been anything else? I don't know how involved you are with that property manager yourself, or if it's another GP working on it, but has there been anything else you've seen or learned about how you work with the property manager on these larger deals? Yeah, I haven't been super, super involved. Um, my experience on the the 40 unit though, was essentially that I I had property manager hire the person who worked, like lived, lived in, worked in the building itself. And then I just, Essentially, I just say, hey, look, if you need to spend more than whatever this dollar threshold is, call me. If you've got any issues with this, call me. If you get over this vacancy percent, call me. And my style is very much to say, like, here's your parameters to notify me. And if it doesn't meet these parameters, then don't bug me until I see this report at the end of the month. Um, on the bigger deal, you got to be a little bit more involved. And it's more like weekly reporting and 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 just tracking metrics to make sure you're on track. But it's all kind of personal preference. There's probably a reason that I am not the the one managing the property manager on this deal because I'd be like, are there any problems? Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but it sounds like it's a, a good mix of delegation and communication. And you've yeah. got to have what you delegate listed out and you've got to have when and how you communicate set in stone up front so that everyone's ready uh, to kind of 
work together on these. Uh, has Did you guys bring in, is the property manager at all in the deal or he's just hired out? Yeah, it's a third party. Got it. Okay. Very cool. Well, you mentioned while we were talking just then the 40 unit and you and I talked about this a little bit recently. I understand you had quite an experience with a 40 unit that I think you said was a lease option. Let's touch on that real quick because this is a, an interesting case that we, we might all learn from. Experience is a good word. Yeah. Experience, uh, <laughs> tuition, migraines. Um, so I, so me and one partner bought a 40 unit it, mixed use commercial building in Branson, Missouri. It's about 45 minutes south of my normal market. It was off market. My realtor brought it to me. She's met the guy at a um, local meetup and was talking to him about potentially selling one of those buildings that like everybody in town knows. Uh, it was called the Majestic Steakhouse at one point in time. So it was this monster. What it was, was it was this six, 67,000 square foot, four-story steakhouse. And Whoa. the... Yeah, wow. and so it has a lot three, of steak. Yeah, Four yeah. This thing was, <laughs> so this thing was crazy. It had three three commercial kitchens, and then the second floor had twenty. Uh, well, at the time it had twenty, but there used to be twenty five. I was going to build it back out to twenty five residential units, so he would have all his chefs and everything live there for free, like that was part of their compensation. Whoa. Um, and back. I think it was built like 98 or something like that. And the guy, it was really, really successful for five or 10 years. The guy died and it kind of went under and someone else took it over and they just couldn't make it work. And so they, anyway, it fell to this guy as like a borderline vacant building. He got it fairly cheap and he was just renovating stuff. So he'd taken out two of the kitchens. So there's only one commercial kitchen left, but it had, when I bought it, it had like a murder mystery theater uh, family that, like Branson is kind of a show town. So a family that's like a orchestra family, a wedding venue. Um, there was a real estate brokerage downstairs. The 20 units were rented and then there were a few commercial spaces. So there was room for growth. And so we got under contract at 2.795 as a 40 year lease. Well, as a lease option, it was a 40 year. The terms for the lease option were 4% interest only for the first year amortized at 30 with a, uh, five-year balloon for deciding on the lease option. And we only had to put 150000 down, which is like chump change, well, like 4%, four, four I think. Yeah. yeah, so it was nothing. Um, super solid terms, super solid potential. The deal was at purchase price during interest-only period. It was cash flowing five to $6,000 a month. Had some vacancies with leases that were signed that were moving in and had some vacancies that were just completely vacant that I was like, yeah, I can fill these. Um, had a paintball place that was being built out in the, in the part of the parking lot that they didn't need. Um, and a property manager in, in the building that seemed incredible. We close and, uh, I've, I've ultimately kind of decided that this was just a lease option scam. Like the old, like, Hey, here's a lease option. Now we make your life miserable. And then we take the property back and lease option it to someone else. Mm. But, Basically what happened is it was like a light switch. Like property manager was not super wonderful anymore. It was just, we fired her within the first two weeks. It was like, things just went super south. I found out, um, and I haven't been able to find any kind of like documentation. I was just told on the phone by her that she got a commission, um, which is not legal, but I don't know that I have any way to prove that other than she and I talking on the phone. So that's kind of a moot point. Um, but it was it, essentially, it seems as though someone, her, was incentivized to kind of stack the books. So there were some people who hadn't been paying rent, but they had been annotated as paying rent and 
rent roll was bogus. And they were like, oh yeah, we were just told that we had to tell you this and then you couldn't get rid of us for like three months and very strange things. Um, wow. I had issues with her coming in with her old maintenance guy to do repairs that I didn't authorize because the seller was still having him do stuff. And in the process, they flooded the kitchen and like through the root or through the floor down into the tenants below. And wow. the guy was like, oh yeah, that was an accident. Like you still got to pay for it, whether it was an accident <laughs> or not. I don't think it was an accident. You dead bolted the door shut with a metal rod, but um, it was literally like all the sinks were just turned on and the double doors were like barred shut. And they're like, what? oh, we didn't mean to. I'm like, it was very some very malicious, strange things that are on camera. Um, but the the reason that ultimately it went super crazy was just uh, like we're the contract. Like bullet point number one says like uh, seller will replace roof within ninety days of closing or owe buyer hundred thousand dollars. Ninety days comes and goes, no roof, no money. Airbnbs that there were the four tenant units that he was rebuilding. It's like you have. Uh, 45 days to complete them or owe buyer $16,000. Like he completed them, but he didn't pull permits. And so when we came in to get them uh, certificate of occupancy, they were like, you got to pull all this out and try again with an architect. And his architect had told him. So anyway, it's just a big mess. And so finally I was just like, look, man, like I'm done. Just give me my money back. He's like, oh, it's a non-refundable deposit. It's a non-refundable deposit if you uphold your end of the contract. Not if you breach in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, uh, twenty the lawsuit was supposed to conclude in July, but COVID. So now it's in November, and assuming that everything goes well and we're able to close out in November, then it'll be twenty-two months of headache since I terminated said deal, and hopefully get all my money back plus attorney fees because uh, I'm over it. It's pretty uh, yeah. Pretty frustrating. Uh, I so. think you got a good chance of winning that one, as far as yeah, I can it tell. Should, it should be. It should be pretty solid. We've you got some stuff on video. You had the door and flooded the place on purpose. <laughs> yeah, uh, man, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fraudulent stuff. That's oh, that's terrible. I'm sorry you went through that. Oh. Yeah, it's it's weird too because it's like since the property management was kind of in on it, it seems like, and I, you know, that's all me conspiracy theorying, but um, with lots of email traffic that kind of validates it. Uh, like, how, how do you know, right? Like, how do you know a tenant's not paying if the rent roll says they did pay? And the tenant says right. they paid because they were coached, like. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. pretty crazy. I haven't heard a, a story like that <laughs> to that, I, that degree of like tenant coaching and cooking the books and like full on just trying to cause physical damage once you own it. That's crazy. I have a video clip of them not cutting a wire in the ceiling at the same time the fire alarm went off, but it's like messing with something in the ceiling, fire alarm goes off and they're like, oh yeah, we fixed it. What were you fixing? The alarm wasn't going off before you went up there with whatever these were. <laughs> like, Wow. 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 Uh, That's insane. Um, yeah. And I've, I've wondered the same thing because this is a common part of this is a common occurrence. I think when you're looking at somebody's deal, a seller is how do you vet and verify the rent roll they're giving you the rents they're reporting. And, and, you know, a lot of times brokers will send you stuff. Here's the current rents. And you're like, okay, this looks great. I need to, I need to be able to verify that these rents are what they say they are, that they're collecting what they say they're collecting. And, um, my mentor, who I run all my stuff by told me, you know, Hey, you could get 
you could get bank deposits and like try to verify what's actually going into their account, which they can't lie about, right? But yeah. the sad thing is a lot of people will lie to you until they have to prove uh, what they're actually doing with something verified and then they won't give you anything at all, right? They're just, oh, yeah. I don't want to share that with you, you know? And you're just like, so it's just like, just be honest. Just be honest with people. You don't have to dance around all this stuff, right? So, um, and keeping your word in real estate goes a long way. You build a reputation for yourself. People want to close with you if you do what you say you're going to do. And yeah. so that's a big deal. So, uh, David, man, we could talk for a long time about all this stuff. Um, cause this is, this is a lot of fun for us. We're going to transition towards wrapping this up and I've got a question for you, which we yep. ask all our guests. There's no way you would have known about this ahead of time, but if I were to write you a check for 10 million bucks and you had to walk away from real estate investing completely, couldn't own any more property, you were done, go do something else with your life. Would you take the money and, and why? Mm. <laughs> could I still talk about real estate investing? You could talk about it. Yeah. You just be completely out. No more investing, no more owning anything. So do your podcast. Oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. You know, on one hand, $10 million just means that I could throw it into an index fund and sit and just say, I never have to work again. That'll exactly. pay for all my kids. Yeah. On the other hand, investing's fun. Um, I would, I would, I would lean towards taking it because I know that I could take that time and I could build something else that doesn't involve real estate. Would you like to guess what your, your podcast co-host answered? Oh, he would walk away. He took the money. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> for him, it's, it's real, real estate is, is definitely a, a means to an end for him. And I think that's the same. It's a hobby. It's fun. It's a lot of fun, but I think it's the same thing. Like it's tough, but I would take the 10 and I would go find something else to do. Very cool. That's awesome. Yeah. We, it's we good to it. hear though. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go, go ahead, ahead. Megan. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's good to hear after we just went into the painful details of that 40 unit that you still hesitated because real estate is fun. I mean, just for everyone listening, yeah. <laughs> if you need to pick me up after hearing the 40 unit story, it's still fun. He's still in it unless you give him a $10 million check, which if you plan to, please call me first. Yeah, make sure that's uh, 10 million after taxes. Otherwise, this question is after bogus. That's after, ta after taxes. That's, that's tax-free, man. Oh boy. It's hypothetical tax-free 10 million. That's awesome. Born lottery All right, tickets. Well, right. David, thank you very much. Take a minute and tell us where people can find out more about you, connect with you, listen to your podcast. Um, go ahead. Yeah. So you can find me at FromMilitaryToMillionaire.com or anywhere social media at MilitaryMillionaire. Uh, if you listen to last week's episode with Alex, he is the co-host, <laughs> not the host. Don't let him fool you. Um, but he, he joins me on my podcast and, and talks sometimes. And I, I know he will never make it this far into an episode to hear me say that. So... <laughs> Um, you guys all better go. You you better all go message him and say Dave's cooler. But <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you again, David. Thanks for tuning in to Multifamily Mavericks. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a rating and review, and share it with your friends. It helps us grow, which helps us find great guests, which in turn helps you grow. And don't forget to connect with us on LinkedIn or on Instagram at Multifamily Mavericks, at Daily Real Estate Investor, at Part-Time Empire. Join us next time to keep learning the multifamily game and scale up to 